Well, hey, this week is also special to me because my lovely bride, Amber Conway, and I are celebrating on Tuesday our eighth wedding anniversary. Come on. There we are. She gets more beautiful every day, every year, and I, something has occurred since then. Young men, this is what marriage does. No, I'm just kidding. No. You feel me, Josh. Josh knows. Um, no, no, just play. And I want to celebrate my anniversary. I don't want to argue this week. Amen. But my bride is very special to me. I love you so much. And I don't know what my life would be like without her. And I think today that there's many of you, I hope all of us, have a person or a thing, or a career, or a passion, something in us that's very special and valuable. And without it, we don't know what we would do. You know, it's, sometimes it's not even just a person, but objects can have value. Like my lucky coin, for example. There's nothing really special about this coin. That's what you think, no. There's nothing really special. In fact, it's not even my lucky coin. I found it in my car this week. <laughs> because I needed an illustration. But it's now lucky to me because I've marked it today. I don't wanna spend this, I wanna save this coin. And every time I see it on my desk or in my office, I wanna remember what we talked about today. But, but I've lived life long enough to know that sometimes things that are special to us, even things that are valuable, things that are important, maybe it's intentional or unintentional, we can have seasons where they become lost, right? So even my, my lucky coin, oh gosh, sorry, a little bit nervous today. Hold on one second. Even my lucky coin can sometimes become, okay, I didn't really expect that to work. Okay. Now I'm getting, okay, did anybody see my coin? Michael, do you know where my coin is? Lori, you saw it, didn't you? This is gonna be really embarrassing, Lord, if, if okay, okay, um, help me find my coin. Okay, God, I'm really trying to do an example for you, and now I put myself out here. Why, why is this happening to me? Lord, help me find my, okay, all right, Shh, take a deep breath. Pastor Justin, think, think here for just a second. WWPKD, what would Pastor Kirk do? Okay, he would say, Justin, stop being an idiot. No, no, he would say, he would say, pray the promise not the problem. I pray the promise. Okay, I got to get my word. I got to get my Bible. I got to pray the, I can't pray the promise if I don't know the promise this morning. This is my new Bible, by the way. See how nice it is? I got this for myself as a treat for preaching 10 sermons. So when you're 10 sermons in, you get a new, amen, come on. When you're 10 sermons in, you get a new Bible, but you're still doing magic tricks, right? Okay, I gotta pray the promise. I've lost my coin somewhere. It's value to, valuable to me. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Okay, think. Things that are lost, can I find them again? Things that are lost, okay. Parables, lost coin, lost coin. There's a lost coin parable, okay. Uh, it's, in, it's in Luke, Luke 15. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay, there it is. All right, I gotta search the word. I don't know the word until I search the word. I've got to try to see that sometimes things that may seem lost to me, I'm not looking in the right place. If I look in the, in the word of God, sometimes things 
that I thought were lost are actually found. I've also learned that things that are marked by God for a special purpose are not easily abandoned, are not easily lost. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, that was awesome. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. I'm just playing. A little validation today. No, just playing. Do you want to know how I did that? I'm not going to tell you. But I will tell you the title of my sermon today is Lost and Found. Say that with me. Lost and Found. I found a picture this week that perfectly describes my sermon prepping time. Go right into scripture or do a magic trick. That's always the tension. But hey, what's a worship pastor to do this morning? So our scripture today is going to come from Luke chapter 15. I'm going to begin at the beginning of that chapter, which is a very good place to start, is the beginning. But I'm going to jump around a little bit through the stories that Jesus told until we get to the last story at the end of that chapter. And I want you to consider today, more than me giving you five points to live by or things that are going to make your life better or your relationship with your dad better, I just want you today to listen and receive. These are more like insights to what this scripture is saying. I want to help you today. I want to share with you some things that Holy Spirit stirred in me as I was studying this word. So let's begin. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Can we leave that verse up for just one second? I want to linger on this for just a second. I want to establish something. Here we have the first part of our crowd that's gathering around Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners. Now, I find this very interesting because of this wording, drawing near to hear him. What you all may or may not know is that throughout Luke chapter 14, right before this, Jesus was teaching very hard things. Like things like, you will have nobody else above me, cut them out of your life, like things like that. And it doesn't say here that now the sinners and tax collectors were fleeing from him. It said that they were drawing nearer to hear him. And what that tells me is that people need to hear hard truths. I think we're so scared. We get so nervous. Well, if I speak the truth in love or if I tell them how things really are according to God's word, they're going to run away. They're going to despise me. And maybe some will. But I tell you what, there's a whole lot of tickling of our ears And it feels really good at first. It's giving me chills right now. It feels really good at first, but after a while, it becomes numb. Can't hear, can't feel it anymore. So the people are drawing near to him because what he is saying is unlike anything that they've ever experienced. Let's go on. And the Pharisees and scribes, they were also there, and they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I want to pause here too real quick. This is the other half of the crowd that has gathered. You have the tax collectors and the sinners, the ones far from God that need a mindset change. But you also have the religious spirits, those who think they know more than God, who also need a mindset change. They are all gathering in this place at this time. Let's read this whole verse together now. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Leave it up for just a second. So Jesus ran away. No. So Jesus was sheepish and shy and didn't engage. No. It says, so Jesus told them this parable. You know what I love about this section is this is legitimately a Jesus clap back to the haters. This is a Jesus showing up in your comment section. This is a Jesus subtweet. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. This is Jesus engaging in the cultural conversation. I see so many people and so many posts that are like, well, Jesus wouldn't engage in that. Make love, not war. <laughs> Give peace a chance. And I'm telling you, Jesus is very concerned with love. He's very concerned with peace. It's the same Jesus that you hear at the Sermon on the Mount that's talking like, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor. It's the same Jesus that instructs us to turn the other cheek when we get struck. He's very concerned with peace, but he's also the same Jesus who's very concerned with capturing our attention, with making us wake up and listen. He's very concerned with that. It's the same Jesus who also said out of his mouth, I didn't come to bring peace to the world, but a sword. He says both. It's both, boss. He says both. So this is a Jesus clap back for anybody on your social media that might say Jesus wouldn't engage in that. Well, here he is. So we've established the audience We've established the purpose. Now we're going to talk about the means by which Jesus is going to engage. In that verse, it said he told them a parable. How many of y'all know what a parable is? It's a story, right? But I think we think all oh, parable. Jesus is taking the easy way out. He's just telling a story. I think it's the most important thing Jesus could do. You see, Jesus wasn't recollecting some event from his childhood where the events could have been fuzzy or misplaced or wrong characters popping up. He didn't recollect a story that had been passed down generation to generation. What he did was on the spot, God in man, God in flesh, told a story that every word had a meaning. Every word had an intention and a purpose. And it was to change everybody in that crowd's mindsets. So he begins with his story by telling a parable of the lost sheep. And he looks at the men in the crowd and he says, how many of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one of them went astray, would not leave the 99 in the open field to chase after the one? Now I believe Jesus is being sarcastic in that moment because those men are like, we wouldn't leave 99 good things to go and get one that's very likely dead. But Jesus says, how many of you would do that? He says, and what joy when you go and find it. You see, Jesus is telling a story of a great shepherd. It's actually mirroring him and what he's doing for us. How there might be 99 healthy ones in a field grazing and happy, but one has wandered off. And I tell you what, it's more of a threat to the shepherd to go and chase after that sheep because that sheep has probably wandered into hard terrain. That sheep is probably dirty and stinky and smelly, and he might have to even break its legs to pick it back up and take it home. But sometimes we do need to be broken before we can get healed amen but what Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting their grumbling 
with the rejoicing that heaven actually does when somebody finds Jesus. It says in Luke 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Amen. Jesus is the shepherd who would risk his life, who would risk it all to chase after you, to chase after me, stinky, dirty, sinful me, and save my life. He moves on to story number two. He had just talked about 100. Now he's going to talk about 10. And he tells a story of a lost coin. I don't it's in the Bible, my coin. But he's not talking about my coin. I don't think Jesus knew I was going to do that silly illustration. But he's talking about a coin. And I find it so interesting. In the first part of the story with the sheep, he addresses the men. He says, how many of you men? And he could have very well done that in this story too if he was talking about wages because he might have been, how many of you men, if you had 10 drachma or 10 coins, if you lost one, which is equivalent to a day's wage, how many of you would not lose your mind to find it, right? You're talking about turning over couch cushions. You're talking about searching. It's a day's wage. But Jesus is actually addressing this story to women. He says, a woman has 10 coins. Now, he could still be talking about wages, but something interesting that I learned is that back in those days, a woman, a Jewish woman, would wear a headdress, a headpiece with 10 coins on it. And how many, if a woman had lost one of those 10, would not be incomplete until she found it? You see, that headdress symbolized that she was married, that she had a purpose. We're talking about ancient times, don't... Don't get feminist on me. But when she went to the market or when she engaged with any of her friends or family or loved ones, she had to have that on. So if one went missing, and we're talking about scouring the place, how many would not have so much joy when you find what you're looking for? I had an example like this with Amber, if Amber remembers this. In 2018, we had been married a couple years, and I just started working at church and I got a phone call that morning. It was a Tuesday morning. And the phone call was Amber in a panic that says, I've lost my engagement ring, my wedding ring. She wears her engagement ring as her wedding ring because we're poor. No. Um, <laughs> but she says, I've lost it. I don't know where. And we're talking, this was a thousands of dollars investment for me. I financed it, Dave Ramsey. Please forgive me. But it was, it was an investment. It was major. It was special. And she says, I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's slipped off. I don't know if I left it somewhere. I've retraced the apartment. I can't find it. So I left that morning on my lunch break and I went to the house and I scoured the, uh, the cushions and I flipped the mattress and I looked underneath the sheets. I looked in the bathroom. I looked in the kitchen sink. I retraced. We lived in an, a big apartment complex. I retraced the hallway. I got into the elevator. I looked in the elevator. I retraced where her steps would have been in the parking lot. I searched her vehicle. I couldn't find it anywhere. So I went back to work and I talked with Nikki Meyer, who any of you that know her, she encouraged me with about five stories of how God showed her things that were lost or whatever. And so she encouraged me. We prayed about it. And I had a certain level of peace, but still no ring. 
It rained all day long. I'm talking about hard downpour. And I had worship practice that night. So I went to worship practice and I'm praying, God, please help us find this. I get home at 11 p.m. I pull into my parking lot. Hundreds of people live in this place. I get out of my car. I take two steps and shining the brightest thing in the entire parking lot is her diamond ring face up. I'm like, my Lord, how did it survive the rain? How did all of these people in this apartment complex walk past this diamond ring and not see it? And I lived in a place that was shady, so they would have had some money in their pocket if they would have found it. But we celebrated, we rejoiced over that. What a miracle. It says in Luke 15, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now Jesus is not just saying that there is joy when one finds God. He says that there's joy with the angels and God. God is literally rejoicing and singing in the heavens. He is literally praising that somebody has come back home. It's a beautiful story. But he builds up to the the biggest part and really where I want to camp out for the rest of this service. He had talked about the hundred, he talked about the 10, and now he's gonna just deal with the one. He's gonna tell the story of a prodigal son. He's gonna tell the story of an older brother, and he's gonna tell the story of a loving father. Let's read it together. There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here, I I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father stopped him. He said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Can we celebrate this morning for that story? I've got five insights, that's all today, that I wanna share with you. And some of them I want you to camp out in because some of them I believe are really just for you. The first insight, number one, sometimes you just have to leave things in God's hands. Can we leave that point up for just one second, team? 
There were some families that I was thinking about today that this was legitimately the point for you. I know your story. I've seen your prayer requests on that prayer wall. And I know the things that you're dealing with and the tensions that you've been managing. Sometimes you just have to leave things in God's hands. Luke 15, 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Can we leave that up for one second? Basically what the son is saying here to his father, this is my inheritance, this is my estate, these are my belongings. It would be better for my life right now if you were dead. So give me what is owed to me and I'm leaving and you're never gonna see me again. Now, I don't know, this is a parable, so I'm not gonna give it a backstory that it doesn't have, but in real life relationships, when a son and a father have gotten to that place, it's a little bit too far gone to handle anything else. If a son looks at his father and says, it's better off for my life that you're dead, give me what you owe me when you do die and I'm out. That's pretty broken. And imagine the father, I'm sure that there were plenty of times where it was like, now son, I don't agree with how you're living. And son, I need, I need to implore you that you're making mistakes. No, finally, the father had gotten to a place where he said, okay, take it. And the father even knew this is likely going to lead to his death. I'm giving my crazy son everything in the world that he'd want, and he's going to go out and kill himself is what's about to happen. I want to encourage you, sometimes you have to get to that point where you just leave things in God's hands. There are some relationships where we've batted around this tennis ball back and forth. I need you to stay here under my house. I need you to observe my rules. I'm telling you, you're living in sin. I'm telling you, you're doing this. I hate you. I want what's mine. I want to leave. And you feel like you've been banging this back and forth, back and forth. And finally, there's got to come to a point that says, God, I can't do this without you. This is your situation. I need to give them this and let them live their consequence. Now, that doesn't mean you don't keep praying. And you don't keep seeking God. Because we find out later in the story, we're going to zone in on it, but the father saw him while he was a long way off. In order for that to have occurred, it meant the father had had to have been looking. And the father didn't just wake up that morning and say, I think I'm just going to go peek outside. No, every single day that father is on that front porch praying, God, bring him home. God, bring him back safe. He is praying, God, bring him back. Bring him back to me. Bring him back to me. And one day over the horizon, while he was still a long way off, he did come home. I was hearing a testimony this week of a guy named Beckett Cook. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a Hollywood writer, fashion creator. In 1992, he came out to his family that he was homosexual. He said his mother had kind of an initial heartbreaking moment, but then they kind of just sort of never talked about it. She didn't hate him. She didn't kick him out. She didn't necessarily celebrate it. He said, it's very powerful. He says, I knew where my mother stood. I knew she loved me, but I also knew where she stood. She was a Christian. In 2009, he gave his heart to Jesus and repented away from that lifestyle. But he said that in 2016, when his mother died, he found a letter in her dresser drawer that were prayers that she was writing to God during that entire time. And the prayers were like, God, convict his heart. 
God, bring the word into his life. God, bring good friends into his world. God, keep him safe from HIV. And he said that part made him just collapse. He said she didn't know this, but partners that he had had throughout all of those years were HIV positive, and he could not fathom why he wasn't. When he went to the doctor, he was negative. He said, I did not realize that all this time, my mother, behind the scenes, she wasn't convicting me, she wasn't hating me, she wasn't slamming anything on me, but every single day she was writing letters to God, praying for my soul. I think sometimes we get to this place where we just take a situation and we leave it in God's hands. Insight number two. God will often do the hardest work in our lives in the hardest places. Luke 15, verses 14 through 16 said, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. I want you to understand today that this would have been the absolute pit of hell for a Jewish man to find himself in, especially one that had come from riches, especially one that had just prior had all that he ever wanted, to now be in the pit, in the mud with pigs. Jewish men did not eat pigs. They thought pigs were super unclean, and especially to just be in there feeding them and actually lusting after what they were eating. That's the point to which his life had gotten. It reminds me of this. Sin takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs more than we'd ever want to pay. I've learned that the hardest work that God is going to do is in those hardest situations. There's a lot of times our heart needs to be broken to become soft enough for him to use. Nothing teaches us like experience. Nothing gives us empathy like going through something. I don't empathize with the poor until I'm there probably. I don't empathize with a person going through a cancer journey until I've either went through it myself or I've walked through it with somebody I love. Those are just a couple of mere examples, but when you're in the pit, when you're in the mud, you finally begin to understand that what led me to this situation I love this quote. It says, God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. The trouble with so many of us is that we have hard hearts and soft feet. Hebrews 3.15 says it kind of this way. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, sometimes when you're in the mud, and I think you all have been there, some of you are in there, and you feel like there's just this ramming down of your heart. It's one break after another after another. It's becoming malleable. It's becoming soft enough to be used. But the next part of that is you gotta pick yourself up and have hard enough feet to endure, to go and help somebody else. That brings me to insight number three. Don't stay in the mud. Luke 15, 17 through 18 says, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I love that line. Can we leave it up for one second? He came to himself. He had an aha moment. He finally looked around and said, this isn't kind of what I was thinking when I went down this road. So finally, he came to himself. It's like that Taylor Swift lyric, right? It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, right? He had an aha moment. But I love the way that Jesus phrased this. Remember, Jesus is not saying any of this without a reason. Jesus said he came to himself. It didn't say he came to that prodigal mindset. It didn't say he came to sin. No, it said he came to himself, which shows me that all along himself, when he repented, that's who God created him to be all along. He came finally to himself through the junk, through the noise. Some of you think God defines you on every single thing that you've ever done wrong, but he says right here, Jesus says in this story, he came to himself all along that repentant heart, that mindset that needed shift. And that was who that young man really was the entire time. Some of y'all need to be amening that way more because that's you this morning. That's you. He says, I will arise and I will go. He didn't say, well, tomorrow after I've showered, or maybe I'll swing by that friend group again, or maybe I'll go and just see her one more time. No. He says, now I'm in the mud. I've had a revelation. I've come to myself. I'm going to arise and I'm going to go. He didn't say, oh, I had a momentary emotional response. He didn't say, okay, well, that felt good for a second. Let me meditate on this for just a little while. No, he said, I'm going to go. And who did he go to? He went back home to his father. Amen. You see, when you look to your father, when you return home, when you arise, you repent and your desires begin to change. I learned a teaching recently from Robert Madu. He preached this a couple months back. He broke down this word desire. And he said, desire, D-E, in many languages often means of or from. And sire is a word for a father. Showing us that the truest desires of our heart should be from our father. So this young man had some desires. He had some lust, he had some sin, he had some mud that he was in. But when he had that mindset change, when he stood up and he says, I'm going home, and he repented, his desires began to change. I will now return to my father. I will now concoct this story. Lord, I am sorry. I have failed you before God in heaven. I am not worthy of you. Just make me a servant in your field. He was already beginning to become humble. He was already beginning to shift his thoughts. His desires were changing. And when we followed the desires that God has put in our heart, what we begin to do is we say, well, how do I desire after the Father? I love Him. I seek Him. I read His Word. I pray to Him. I live out His ways. I live out through His eyes and His ears and His heart. I, his truth becomes my truth. That's what happens this morning when our desires begin to change. I've got two final thoughts. 
He is recklessly running after you. Luke 15, 20 says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Can you imagine this scene? It would have been highly undignified for a wealthy Jewish man to go running after anybody. But while he was still a long way off, the father who was praying on that doorstep every day, I finally see him, he's finally coming. So he runs down the driveway and everything's jiggling. My money don't jiggle, jiggle, but everything's jiggling. But finally he sees his son and he tackles him. How undignified, how reckless of him to tackle him and to kiss him and to embrace him and to forgive him. That's the reckless love. Maybe that's what Corey Asbury was talking about. That's the reckless love of God that I would run and embarrass myself, that I would tackle you and kiss you and hug you when you embarrass my family. No, no, no. I'm going to do that because I love you and I'm forgiving you and I'm embracing you. I think maybe we've assigned the word prodigal to the wrong character in this story. You see, Merriam-Webster defines prodigal as lavish, reckless, luxuriant. And yeah, you can look at the son and say he lived lavishly and recklessly and luxuriantly to his demise. But you could also look at the father and say, wow, he lavished over him with grace. He recklessly chased after him and waited for him and loved him and embraced him. And he luxuriantly celebrated him. You see, when we come back to God, we assume that his finest things don't apply to us anymore. We've already worked out that we don't even deserve to be on property. Just put us way out in the fields. Just at least feed me. But God doesn't, he didn't just pick the young man up and say, all right, I guess you could go back to the field. He didn't say, ah, man, sure, go take a shower. No, he hugged him and he said, bring my best robe put my best ring on him my symbol of covenant with him we're back he said put sandals on his hard feet that led him back home and also let's cook up the biggest meal and the biggest celebration because what was lost and dead is now alive is now found he's the god of more than enough more than we could ask think or imagine and finally my last thought for you today is God's love is for all of us. It's <laughs> my favorite part of this story because there's another character. There's an older brother. The older brother in this story is symbolizing the Pharisees and the scribes. It's actually the, really supposed to be the worst character in what Jesus is trying to get across because what the brother does is he's jealous the brother is envious and, and he goes to the father and he says, what about me? I've endured, I've stayed, I, I've been faithful. Why are you gonna throw a party and give him the best things? Here I am, what do I receive? But the father responds in this verse and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus says this on purpose. 
these people who were supposed to be the worst characters in the story, he still called him son. There is hope for the prodigal. There is hope for the religious spirit. In Jesus, there is hope for all of us today. So I don't know today what touched you, if it was the sheep or the coin or the human soul. This idea that things that are lost can become found, they can come home and the heavens can celebrate. But I want to encourage you today that you're never too dirty, you're never too insignificant, you're never too far gone for the love and grace and mercy and goodness of God to chase you down. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap. Right now, we're gonna worship, so I would just ask that you stand with me. But I wanna encourage you with something. This isn't just a transitional part of service before we get to go home. The Word is like the sword meant to penetrate something today. And we get this chance to give God His love language, which is our worship and our adoration. But we can also meditate on what He was stirring in us today. In just a moment after we worship, I'm gonna come and pray with us. So let's worship our Father together right now. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Jesus, that when you were challenged, you didn't flee, you didn't hide away, but you spoke to us what we needed in that very moment. We thank you that every single word of that applies to us today. Whether some of us this morning find ourselves in the role of the prodigal or in the role of somebody who has been sitting for a while, burnt out, critical, wondering when people are gonna get what they deserve, whatever it is that we find our place Today, we realize that God's love is enough for all of us. We receive it today. I want to ask you right now, if you have said, Pastor Justin, I, have, I am that prodigal. I've been in the mud. I've been toying around with making some kind of decision, but I haven't yet arisen and ran back to my father. If that's you this morning, He already knows your heart. He sees you even though you're a long way off. But just so we can pray with you and for you, I just ask that you raise your hand right now. Say, I've been far away, but I'm coming home. I see a young man right here. And even if there aren't physical hands, I know that there are internal prayers being lifted up right now. So on behalf of the one that raised their hand, let's pray this together this morning. Lord Jesus, I open my life to your love, to your Lordship. I need you, I want you in my world as my Lord. I know I've sinned, I've been in the mud, but I come back home. You have paid the price for my forgiveness. 
Today is a fresh start. It's a new beginning as I surrender to you. Help me become the person you created me to be. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's celebrate like the heavens are celebrating right now. Come on. Amen.